we'll be moving into our time of reading scripture this morning. Today's scripture passage comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 19 through 27. This can be found on page 1741 of the Pew Bible in front of you. A Bible we believe is the word of God that's living and active. If you don't have a Bible or if you need some to give one to a friend, you can take the Pew Bible. That's our gift to you. Um, also, as I get started to read, there's going to be an AMA after the service. So you'll see a number after the reading that you can look up through the service. And if you have questions, you can text. All right? Read God's word. Again, 1 Corinthians 9, starting from verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Femi. Uh, please continue to thank and um, just just thank every day, Gwen, for being our worship or our children's minister. Uh, we are very, very fortunate to have her. And um, I just want her morale to be as high as possible all the time. Um, <laughs> I also want to thank all of you who are 80, like the 80 volunteers to make an event like that happen. Thank you so much for being here and taking time on a Saturday to do that. I think it was worth it. I really appreciate um, your engagement with that. Also, how many of you um, invited people until somebody told you no? How many of you invited and got a no? Anybody? Good. God bless you. You asked enough people. Right? <laughs> thank you for all you who got yeses too, but um, I want to particularly honor those who got rejected because that's what it's going to take to bring people to Jesus, right? Okay, we're gonna have to dive in here because again, I have a nice 90-minute sermon for you to preach in 30. Um, all the slides are on highpointchurch.org slash sermon slides. So you can take pictures. It makes me feel great when you do that during the sermon, um, but you can just get them there, okay? And uh, all right, hope, please try to listen quick, okay? I'm gonna try not to talk too fast. For the last five weeks, I've been um, saying that we need to recognize that there is a method of worldliness or of mammon, to use Jesus' phrase, um, discipling us, shaping us as human beings that I've been calling the technopoly, okay? Um, the misunderstanding that you could take from that, if you're not a Christian, you don't understand Christian theology and scripture, is that what I mean is, is that Christians are against our bodily lives in creation and that we don't like science. It's actually, that's actually not it at all. Um, God created, we believe creation is a gift from God. We are part of that creation. We're meant to take dominion in it. And therefore, we have the theological basis on the first page of our holy book to engage in science and to create technology as fundamental to our human experience, right? Worldliness is actually an, a religion, not a view of science, 
that is an idolatry that takes the world and uses it as an idol, as creation, unconscious, or that does not care about the rule of its creator. And what it amounts to is the worship of what Jesus called mammon, which is just defining the world as we want it to be for ourselves to use it as we want it. There's nothing scientific about that. There's nothing creation-loving about that. But that is what we human beings fall into when we don't worship God. Jesus literally said that the way humans actually function is that we're actually choosing always between two masters and we can't serve both. We will either serve God or mammon or worldliness, right? Now, um, I also don't want you to think that what I'm saying is technology is bad. My clothes are technology. I'm speaking through technology. Human beings are in the divine image are created to make technology. When I say technopoly, what I mean is a certain cocktail of dynamics in which devices, media, services, and mechanisms that we've never had access to before in the history of the human race are interacting with certain commercializing and controlling perverse incentives connected with a conglomeration of very elite people controlling these things, connected with very sophisticated psychological knowledge in which our um, our internal reactions and our deepest instincts are hacked against our minds and what we would normally want to do in our deliberative minds. And it penetrates every area of our life so that there's no distinction between our commercial life and our civil life. Right? It used to be there was a realm where we did commerce, we bought and sold and traded, and a place where we had family and civil life in which those dynamics were not the functional dynamics. And now the commercial world comes right into your bed. And when you put all those things together— Worldliness or mammon has the most powerful discipleship tool that's ever existed outside of the Holy Spirit of God himself and the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. And over the last four weeks, because I can't work all that out, right, I've just tried to put like buoys in the water so we could see how much we're drifting as human beings and as people. I tried to say like, look at how the technopoly is affecting how we believe in what we believe in our faith. Look at how the technology is affecting how we use our time in the life that we've been given and the time that we've been given. Look at the way how this is forming us as people, forming our character, forming even our concentration. And look at how this is functioning, how we make other people priorities for their own, like for their own value to cherish and delight in other people and care for them because they matter just because they are people made in God's image, not because we can get anything out of them or because they can do stuff for us, right? And by like reckoning with those buoys, seeing how we're drifting, my goal is to say this, basically. Listen, your relationship with the technopoly is not a tortured romance, right? It's a predatory relationship. Do you understand? Like, you can imagine, like, a young woman, like, wanting to love and be loved by somebody, getting on one of the dating apps, which is probably a terrible idea, and meeting some handsome boy, and going on on dates, and it's, like, on and off. It's, like, five dates and fooling around, and then, like, he doesn't call, and then he does. But when he calls, he's, like, I don't know why I didn't call. You know, my life is kind of a mess. I'm working through these things, and, like, you're just the kind of person I need in my life, and, like, you're so awesome, and, like, I don't know why it's like this in your life. And she's, like, yeah, like, we're just, like, it's hard. Like, it's kind of a tortured thing. We don't know why we do this to each other, but, like, you know, we're kind of getting through it. And then she finds out he's dated, like, 37 other girls during this time, okay? Like, you're—you don't have a tortured romance. You're—like, you're—he's a predator. Like, you're—you're prey. Do you understand? I mean, people are like, yeah, my phone and I, yeah, like, it doesn't want to do this to me. I don't want to do that to this. Like, we're, we're going to work it out. It's like all a big misunderstanding. No, no, it isn't, right? There are billions and billions of dollars and trillions of points of IQ, all programming to control you. It's not a tortured romance. 
It's a predatory relationship. And the reason why that's so important is because once you realize that guy dated 37 other girls, your sense of like, oh, this is like, like this is real life. This is authentic. Like somehow turns to like absolute hatred and disgust. And that emotional transition is incredibly necessary for you to get free. Do you understand? You have to actually hate what's killing you. Does that make sense? And my goal is for you to feel that way. I want you to have a certain amount of good disgust for that which controls you and brings about what isn't good. I mean, Jesus literally said, he said, listen, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, you have to be like as shrewd or as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, right? When you believe in Jesus— and he is your master, and you follow in his way, that creates additional human vulnerability. Do you understand that? Because you can no longer lie and be pragmatic and play games and do whatever people want you to and get, go along to get along. None of those resources of hiding and protecting yourself are available to you anymore, which means you are profoundly exposed and vulnerable additionally because you believe in Jesus, in addition to the vulnerabilities that are already part of being a human being. Right? And what that means is, is that it's terrifying. And Jesus is saying the remedy of this is first to recognize you are going out on the landscape like a sheep among wolves. You have to understand that. And then because of that, you can't, you can't win with your body. You gotta win with your wisdom. You've gotta be shrewd enough to escape, shrewd enough to know what's going on, right? So in this series, what I basically argued is this, is that what that means is we have to see and flee the control of the technopoly, and we need to recognize that Jesus isn't just our Lord that is our King, or our Savior that is our rescuer, but our Master that is the one who mastered away and leads us as learners and disciples. Does that make sense? We have to follow his way. And the, and the space between the discipleship of worldliness through the technopoly and the discipleship of Jesus through the, his way of life in the Spirit, are, the difference between those two is not a misunderstanding. It's a rivalry. Do you understand? It's so important you understand that. Therefore, functionally, we have to engage in what I'll just call digital intentionalism. And we have to actually follow and walk in the way of Jesus. Not just believe the truths that Jesus says. Some of the truths that Jesus says are a way of life he's telling us to walk in. And we can't say we actually believe the truths Jesus says if we don't walk in them. Does that make sense? So I want to put this under what I'll just call digital asceticism. Now, that word may not have positive connotations for you. Asceticism, in its original meaning, meant strict training of the body so that your mind and heart and soul are leading your body. Your instincts and your stomach aren't leading your heart, mind, and soul. Does that make sense? And that requires us actually taking responsibility for our spiritual development even though we're embracing God's resources. So this is one of those functional paradoxes of Christian faith. Your faith is your responsibility. It's your responsibility. It's not God's responsibility. When you say, God, why don't I have more faith? That's actually not a fantastic question. Um, so get some spiritual counsel about that. I'd love to talk to you about that, okay? It's our responsibility, and it functions on God's resources. So it's all a gift, and we can't boast before God, and we don't have to worry about coming up short. You're not going to come up short if you use God's resources. But it's your responsibility. And you have to take that responsibility, and you have to go into what this passage in 1 Corinthians calls strict training. Right? He's like, look, 
um, only one person who runs the race gets the prize. He doesn't tell you to just prepare for the race like you're going to run a race. He actually tells you to prepare for the race so that you can be the one person who wins it. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been champions of anything, athletically, or in music, or something like that, where there's one winner and you were that winner. And you recognize that a good bit of who wins is talent. Right? A good bit of who wins is talent. But a good bit of who wins is who busts their butt like crazy. And what, what Paul is saying is, I'm not telling you to train like somebody who's going to finish the race. I'm telling you to train like somebody who's going to win it. Right? He said, therefore, everybody who competes, who really wants to win, right, goes into strict training. Right? That word is the most intense Greek word in the New Testament for self-control. It's hard to translate. Strict training is pretty good. Basically, it's to get control of your body and to make it work for you. Because otherwise, the tragedy of Philippians 4, those who are of the world are, their stomach is their God. That's the other version. Does that make sense? And the technopoly is designed to make your stomach your God. Because that's how you're most easily controlled unintentionally, where you don't realize you're being controlled, and it's the most effective to utilize you commercially. Do you understand that? It's why you keep playing those stupid games that are meaningless for hours. It's the reason why Candy Crush was a thing. Right? Your, your instincts are programmed to take pleasure, like on the dopamine level, for what's called um, the, the spot of like proximate growth. So you already know a bunch of stuff. You have to make one little step to be able to do this task that's been put in front of you. When you figure out that little step and you do that next task— your, your mind, your brain is pre-programmed to be like, that's a good thing, right? Because if you lived out in the woods and you were throwing spears at salmon in a river and you kept missing the same way over and over and over again, and then you're like, wait a second. I'm going to shoot a little lower because the water, when I stick my stick in the water, the part in the water looks like it's a little, something's happening. And you spear that first salmon in the head, like your body goes, that, remember that. That was fantastic. You are fantastic. Right? Like that's, like nature, God, like programmed your body to like, when you figured something out like that, you were growing in that zone of proximal development for you to feel this like internal, like, oh, that's so great, right? It's like, so here's, if you move the little green candies over here, they all break and disappear. Aren't you fantastic? And it's that same thing in your body. You're literally using it, not just to have stupid fun. You're actually mistraining your neurology to make it hard for you to ha take pleasure in real things. Right? Why does that game exist? to get your attention by hacking this thing inside of you that likes the zone of proximal development. It likes those little payoffs. It makes you feel like you're growing. You're not growing. You're actually becoming neurologically and limbically disformed, deformed. While it's tricking you into feeling like you're growing, you're getting pleasure out of it and wasting your life. Do you understand? And if you don't want to be a sucker for that the rest of your life, you've got to realize you're in an abusive predatory relationship, and you have to delete that crap and get it out of your life, and you need to do it with strict training so that you can, in the First Thessalonians 4 sense, get control of your member, your body. Or it'll control you. Your stomach will be your God. Right? And so Paul even says, look, to, in a certain way, I beat my body and make it my slave. Like, I, there's certain things I have to do to get control of myself. I have to take responsibility for myself as a person, for my growth and development, for my spiritual life, in God's resources. Right? 
Now, notice the interesting thing that he says here about this, right? What's the payoff? You see, on one level, you could be like, oh, so Nick, we're going to be like super Christians. Is this going to be like the Navy SEAL, like Christian center of Madison? Okay, no, this is literally just the Bible, okay? It's just the Bible for everybody. But also think about this. What's the passage before it? In the passage before it, Paul says this. He's like, look, I want to be able to be who Jesus needs me to be to literally everybody. I want to be able to go to these like really idiosyncratic Jewish cultures and be like a Jew to them, but also be Jesus to them and like win the Jews, right? And then I want to be able to go to like these pagan brothel and orgy attending pagan Greeks in Corinth, and I want to be able to like meet them on their own cultural ground and be who Jesus wants me to be to them so that they can be saved. And there's like all kinds of different people everywhere that I'm going to be all over in my life. And I need to like meet them where they're at in a really deep way so that they can see what Jesus might look like in them. And they can really think, oh, this is what it would mean. It would mean becoming a Jew. It would mean becoming someone who belongs to Jesus. And this is what it would mean. Now, it's easy to feel like this section that comes right after that where he's like, so, therefore— I go into the strictest spiritual training I can. I metaphorically beat my body and make it my slave. I make sure my stomach is not my God, but that the work of the Spirit in me is what captivates me as a person increasingly throughout my life. Okay, because I could talk about this for an hour and a half, I just wrote a paragraph for you, okay? And so this is what I want to say about the dynamic between those two passages. We might think that to be all things to all people, we must not make ourselves all that unlike others as we pursue godliness since such a change only makes the cultural chasm between us bigger. The truth is the opposite. It was through extreme yet humble and loving holiness that Jesus and his apostles were able to be approachable to the world. The more mature they were, the more intuitively they knew the difference between outer trivialities and the vital forms of real godliness. Thus, the more they could handle and touch things of the world without being possessed or corrupted by them. Read the last passage in the book of Haggai, and that's the prophetic vision that God gives Haggai. That just like throughout all of human history, when dirty things touch clean things, clean things get dirty. But there's a way the Spirit of God can operate in somebody to be so full of a certain kind of divine purity that it can enter into the soiled thing and make it clean. Does that make sense? All right, there's two ways to break this down. One's negative and one's positive. So the two parts of this digital asceticism or spiritual asceticism is fleeing the technopoly and second is pursuing the way of Jesus. Okay, so first— Digital intentionalism, fleeing the way of mammon, or fleeing the discipleship of the world through the technopoly. What that means is this. Digital intentionalism is, digital intentionalism is making our digital use serve our purposes and the will of God. Making our digital use serve our purposes and the will of God. Okay, I'm going to give you 20 ways to do that. Now, if you go to the highpointchurch.org slash technopoly webpage, you can click on a do- Word document or a PDF document that will open. It has these on it, Okay. I'm going to go through them really quickly. One, turn off basically all your notifications on everything. I only have two apps that can notify me about things, and only at very specific times of day, and they can never make noises. And it just allows me to have a life, okay? Secondly, I have a whole system of do not disturb. If you go into your phone where it says do not disturb, you can actually set—you can calendar your do not disturb, right? So, like, for example, from 10.30 to 5.30 a.m., my phone is on do not disturb. You can't call me. Call Mike Beresford, Okay. (laughs) And you'd be like, well, but Nick, 
you know, what if I have a kid who's like, and they're at some like party at 2 a.m. and the people are using drugs and they have to get a hold of me. Like I have, I have my phone has to, they gotta be able to get through. Okay, it's really simple, okay? Your do not disturb will let through anybody that you've favorited in your contacts, okay? So favorite like five people total, including that kid. And when they call you, it'll get through and it'll ring on your nightstand if that's where you have your phone, which you probably shouldn't, but there it is, right? So like, I, nobody can get a hold of me. But my daughter who goes to the UW, if she calls me at 2 a.m., my phone is going to ring and I'm going to answer it. Because when my phone rings in the middle of the night, I know there's only five people who can call me, right? And one of them is sleeping next to me. So that gets it down to four unless my wife is being weird, <laughs> right? Third is just unfollow everybody, okay? Um, so for example, I, some, of you, some of you are my Facebook friends, probably a lot of you. Um, here's what you need to know. I don't follow any of you. Not one of you in this room, except Alexi, um, do I follow, uh, or Rachel, but she, we're not even friends, right? So, um, so like when I look at my Facebook feed, honest to God, it's 20 seconds a week. I can look at my entire Facebook feed in 20 seconds a week, because the only thing that's on there is stuff my wife posts, which is nothing, my sister-in-law and my brother, the only person who posts is my sister-in-law, my mom, some weird Italian stuff, right? Manohar, and that's it, man. And, and like, I'm just like, and I'm done. It's over. I click out of the ads, that's it. And you can do that. Like you, can, look, you can, after a month or two, when you realize you got your life back and you want to deliberately add some things back, you can do that, right? But most of us have not very deliberately decided who to include. So start by excluding everybody and then be extremely deliberate over time who you include back. Minimize your apps. Just get rid of, like, there's a whole bunch of apps you can just get rid of. Or you can just get rid of them on your, like, on your screen. So, like, even if you just put them like back in your apps, they're just not here, so that you have to go looking for them to get them, that makes it a couple steps to do it. So um, fourth is just delete all the junk food apps. Like if it's a, like who's hot, who's not, candy crush kind of games, I have no games on my phone, get rid of all that stuff, just delete all of it, okay? None of that's good for you, none of it's helping you, there's no positive benefit, you're not, you don't have a ministry of candy crush, right? Like you just need to get rid of it, okay? It's not helping. And then Six is um, use news digests. Some, some people who really struggle with anxiety, um, what, what's happened is, is that one of your instincts is to be in the know as a human being. Because one, we're 10 times more attuned to negative emotion than positive emotion. And we have this instinct that if we know stuff, we'll be useful. And so what that draws us to is clickbait, right? Why does clickbait work? Because of those instincts. So those instincts are being predatorily used to get us to focus on things right? They're like, like, women who don't have a lot of clothes on are not the only way to get human attention through instinct. Do you understand? There's lots of human instincts that can be tapped into, and as Stanford and other psychological colleges have been able to figure that out and to turn that into a digital methodology, lots of our instincts are being attacked. And so it's not just the clickbait of, like, a lady's chest. It's all kinds of things that are attacking us at that visceral level. So what you do is you just get rid of all the news, and you pick one or two weekly news digests that you probably get through email that you scroll through and read. Almost nothing on the news is going to be history. You understand that? And you're like, but Nick, there's all these things that happen. You're not going to remember them, okay? Like, most Americans don't remember that Hillary Clinton had her own server at her house, okay? That was not that long ago, and it was an enormous issue. And most people are like, what? What happened? What happened? You're not going to remember. So you can read all the news, and then you're going to forget it all. Partly because you're going to read the next piece of news before your 
brain is able to remember the last piece of news. So even while you read it, you can't even remember it. So just don't bother. Don't pull all that anxiety in your life because almost all the news is negative because that's what you're naturally attuned to and it's hacking you. So get rid of it and just get a digest, okay? Seven, declutter your email, manual subscribe from basically everything. I won't elaborate on that. Um, some of you need to like literally dumb down from a smartphone. Um, really strong porn addictions. Um, you just can't not look at social media all day. Some of you just have to get a flip phone for a while at least. Um, one study, set, one, one book that has looked at a bunch of these says, once your mind is pickled on the technopoly, you can't unpickle it. It's like addiction. It's like alcohol addiction or cocaine addiction. Um, digital addiction is an addiction. And once your brain is shaped neurologically around that addiction, you may have to act like an alcoholic or somebody trying to stay away from drugs to keep from getting drawn back in, right? It's true of video game addiction too, of course. Nine, eliminate impulse online shopping and buying by creating a digital wanter list. Okay, so I have this Google Doc. <clears throat> that's my wanter list. Here's why. Because the technopoly is all designed around commercialism. You understand this, right? Even when Facebook takes your information from free and sells it, they're not selling it because you're, you're getting Facebook for free. That's not what's happening. They're selling it to people who are using it to hack you to get you to buy stuff. It all, all of this comes back to you doing stuff or buying stuff that other people want you to do or buy. Do you understand? So you're literally going to get ads specifically designed for you. Even the price is tailored for what you spent on the last 18 items you bought and what they think you will spend. Even on some of these websites where you think that that's just the price of something, because at Walmart it's the price of something, it's not anymore. It's your price. It's what you'll probably pay. And then they'll still tell you it's 50% off, right? And so you'll be like, I should buy this. This is a deal. Because they're hacking your opportunistic impulse, desire that instinct that you have to, to like grab opportunities when they're there. Shopping is like that. So what you do is you take that thing and you open up your wanter list, click right on your web browser, using technology in a good way, and you put it in there in your web browser. And you put the date. I want another hunting all wool hoodie. $120 February 19th or whatever it is, right? And it's got to be there a month before I can shop for it. Right? And if after a month, I go back and I'm just reading the black text on the screen, not looking at somebody's advertisement with somebody's boobs in it. And I go, I do want one of those. I, do, I think I actually do need one of those and that will actually improve my life and I want to spend my money on it. Then I go shop and purchase one and nothing else while I'm on the website and they push 19 sales at me. Do you understand? You can do this, but like you've got to be smart, right? Okay, use Grayscale 95% of the time. Some of you already know and people have already made fun of the whole Grayscale thing. But what some people don't know is that for a lot of operating um, systems, including Android, there's a toggle that you can put on your home screen where you can toggle back and forth between black and white and color. And so if you're like, but yeah, well, like when I show fishing pictures to people, I want it to be in color. Or like if I'm going to buy a shirt on Amazon, I want to like know the color is right. I don't want to have to go through my systems and settings and figure it out, right? Okay, fine. Like um, there's been enough social pressure on the tech companies that they have put workarounds in. They're just a little hard to find the first time. Okay? So you got to put in the 10 minutes of work and find the thing, and once you do, you can start using their system. The reason they made that is because they can say they did when we attack them morally, but also because they believe that once you toggle, they will beat you over time. Over time, you'll stay in color. What you have to do is be mentally deliberate that you're in an abusive relationship, <laughs> right? And think like a sheep that's wandering among wolves, and you flip it into color, that's the right color, you flip it back right? I found that to be really helpful. 
Because there's times I want to show people a picture of a fish or something, and there's some times where I want to see the color, and then I can just flip it right back. Does that make sense? Okay, um, the bedroom ban. Just keep all that stuff out of the bedroom, whether you have a pu- another person in there or not. My wife and I have never had a TV in our bedroom. We, like, I have my phone by my bed, but again, it flips on to do not disturb. It's in black and white. And I have a, we have a very strong put down your phone first rule at a, in our bedroom. So it's like my wife finishes with her things. Like, my phone is down. Also, at night, read one of these, like, analog books, right? <laughs> you just read an analog book. And the reason why you read the analog book is this. What happens when you start reading this in bed? What? You fall asleep, right? What happens when you read this in bed? You stay awake. You get the difference? It's a substantial difference. You understand? Like, you're, you're like, Nick, I try to read a book in bed. I don't even get through a paragraph. That is the point. You understand? That is the whole point. I'm still reading the same page in my salmon fishing book for like the last three weeks. All right. Bedroom ban, social media um, streaming watch standard. Okay, so, uh, okay, so if you're going to watch Netflix, Hulu, whatever, YouTube, make a rule that you only watch with people. There's a show you want to watch? Fine. Watch it with people. You get together with two or three people. They all watch that show. And you watch it together, and you only watch it together, and you agree how much you're going to watch together so you can help each other get off of it. Does that make sense? And then talk about afterwards. Oh, that was such a great show. I like the blah, blah, blah. Oh, the dialogue, the character development, blah, 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 right? Okay. So don't watch Grey's Anatomy because there is none. Okay, uh, then <laughs> you can stop autoplay on most of these. It's very easy to stop autoplay on like Netflix and, um, and uh, uh, Prime, for example. Those are the two that we have at our house. And the great thing is, is it doesn't just stop it from playing the next episode. It stops playing the trailers when you're flipping through stuff. So the 40 minutes you spend finding something to watch, because it keeps playing nine seconds of a trailer, that all ends. And then you can pick something and it doesn't play. And you're like, well, Nick, I can stop it. Well, the reason they created that in the first place is because you can't. Do you understand? The whole purpose of automatically starting the next episode is because you will fall into it. Right? Remember the next, the Netflix, one of the Netflix CEOs or executives said, we are competing with sleep. Right? So stop autoplay. Do two steps to social media. Okay, so for example, I still have the Facebook app on my phone because my wife and I buy stuff off marketplaces. However, I have to go into my apps and search for it. It's not on any of my screens. Because what I found is if it was on my screens, I was checking how many salmon fishing reels were available at what price, like six times a day. It just is what it is. I'm a human being, right? So if you, so what that's designed to do is to force you, and for some of you, you need to get the social media app completely off your phone and devices and only do it on a web browser. And by doing that, it'll narrow down dramatically when you do it, and it'll be a little bit more deliberate. Have a digital curfew. I don't use my phone between this hour and this hour. Can be really helpful. Um, Pocket web browsing, a lot of people just end up clicking around, especially like when they're working, they're like, I'm at work, I need to read this website. No, you don't really need to read that website. That's actually impulsivity, right? What's happening is you are impulsive in finding out new information. That's one of your instincts that's now being hacked by the technopoly. What you do is, is in that impulsivity, you go, oh, I'm going to save this to where I save the URLs of articles I want to read later. I use an app called Pocket. It's really simple. It's right in my web browser. I just click save to Pocket. I X out of the thing, and I just saved nine minutes of my life, right? Um, what I found is, is that you read about one-tenth of the articles you save. I've got about 1,800 articles saved to Pocket right now, none of which I've read. I've probably read 50 in the last two months. Does that make sense? That impulsivity, you think you're reading, you think you're learning, you're wasting your time, okay? Some of you need to use a dumb watch. A lot of the times we get into, the, into our phone, we take out our phone to see what time it is, 
Oh, there's my notifications. Oh, I should check those. And off you go. If you have a dumb watch, not a smart watch, you can look at time and go, oh, it's this time. Now, if you have a smart watch, there are some ways to, to make that work for you if you can control your notifications and stuff, which I won't get into now. Okay. Question every phone draw. Okay, this one's a little harder. And sometimes you can use a rubber band or a post-it. Put a post-it on your note. Why, are, why did you take me out of your pocket? Right? And literally ask yourself in a deep, meaningful, philosophical, and existential way, why did you just take this out of your pocket, really? Right? And it turns out most of the time it's the existential angst of minuscule boredom in which I don't wish to psychologically have to be myself in the difficult world that is, but instead I wish to distract myself and for my stomach to be my God. And when you realize that, here's what you do. You don't hate on yourself and be like, I'm such a bad person. You just put it back in your pocket. Unused. Even if you pull it out two minutes later, you're like, ah, crap. And you have to do that like a hundred times. You just keep doing it. Does that make sense? You might have to wrap it in saran wrap and put it in your pocket. Some of you might need that. Okay. 19, do it together. Like actually get some friends together and decide what you're going to do and actually hold each other accountable. And you, but you need to say not like, I'm going to do this. You have to be like, listen. I'm doing this, and I'm going to stop doing this like a week, and you have the right to shake me, to slap me, to do whatever it takes, because I know I'm not in a tortured romance. I'm in an abusive relationship, a predatory relationship, right? Okay, and then last, measure. Just measure how much time you spend on these things. Just use one of those apps that measures. Just measurement will make it better because you don't want to face yourself at the end of the week anyway. So you'll start using it less, but also you'll start asking yourself questions based on reality, right? So those are 20 things you can start to do. Now, some of you are going to be like, Nick, but like, but I have a social media ministry, or I have like, I have a technopoly job. Like I've had people be like, Nick, I literally code video games. Or I literally write like ad pieces for our digital marketing, or I am trying to monetize my social media account. Okay, here's the thing. My first response is, okay, Tiger. Sure you do. Okay. Um, but Christians are going to have to handle the technopoly. If we're going to become all things to all people, some portion of us are going to have to handle the technopoly. We're going to have to use social media. We're going to have to, God forbid, get on TikTok. Okay. But like, if, the, if we want to become all things to all people so that by all means possible, we may save some, we're going to have to do this. Do you understand? Which is why we have to be focused on digital intentionalism in the way of Jesus a hundred times more, sorry about the spit, girls, <laughs> than, than we otherwise thought. Our, our spiritual asceticism, our training of ourselves to understand we are in a predatory relationship, how we control these things in our life, how we are intentionally making these technologies used for us when they are literally designed as anti-ministry and they are literally designed to corrupt us, right? It's like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I'm going to become all things to all people. So because I've chosen to have that work, I am 100 times more going to train like I have to win the race. Do you understand? They go together. The profound pursuit of holiness and the pursuit to be sent to the world and with the world actually go together. They're not poles of religious belief. Okay, let's keep going with the last minute we have to the other part. What we also need positively is to pursue discipleship. We need to not just say we believe Jesus, but believe Jesus in the way of life he's calling us to live for our positive formation spiritually, okay? 
and we have to put some structure to it because this is an incredibly deliberate, structured approach to make our lives unstructured and non-deliberate, right? And so there's a few ways to think about this. Some of you wouldn't know this. I'm old, right? I'm 46. And so I remember when Bible-believing evangelical churches had a spiritual liturgy that people actually participated in. And that was that you had a quiet time or a devotional time every day. Every day, you would sit down and read a substantial portion of the Bible. You would meditate on what that meant. You'd usually journal a little bit on what it meant. And then you'd pray, starting with that Bible passage and what you just learned, unto sharing your anxieties with God and making requests and so on. That was called a quiet time or a devotional time. It was taught in all the college ministries. When I went for my first year as a freshman in college, 11 a.m. to 12 noon was when I did my devotions every day. It was one of the only things I spiritually did right. In fact, my, my doormates, my non-Christian doormates, they'd come in, sometimes they'd come in drunk at 11, but sometimes they'd just come and be like, hey, let's go to the dining hall. And I had, I had on my wall, do not disturb me from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. And I would just point to it. I wouldn't even acknowledge their existence. I would go. And they knew that I would come down at 12 to the dining hall, but I was not coming. And you were not to disturb me during that hour. And honest to God, you guys, that, that hour made my life. It made my life. I read a chapter of Proverbs every day. I had more wisdom than most of my professors about life in one year. It's unbelievable. People would look at me and be like, how did that come out of you? Because I'm a little bit of a crazy person, right? But I would just be like, well, this, you know. And they'd be like, where did that come from? And I was like, uh, God, you know. And so the, for, the formation has this countervailing effect. It puts weightiness in you. And also evangelicals used to really believe in fellowship, deep, meaningful, spiritual Christian friendships. We also used to go to church about three times a week. We would go to church on Sunday morning and hear a doxological sermon, meaning I'm preaching to raise worship in your hearts so that you can worship, love, and adore God. It is intentionally an intellectually emotional event. Then on Sunday night, we would come back for an evangelistic expositional sermon where I would preach out a particular passage of the Bible, and I would explicitly make a gospel invitation so that the person you brought could accept Jesus and you could learn about the Bible. And then on Wednesday night, we would get together for another hour of biblical teaching, right? And that was just the basics, right? And of course, we went to worship every week, not twice or once a month, when there weren't sports games for the kids. And that liturgy of life went away before deconstruction happened. Do you understand? That went away 20 years ago. And when that went away, we stopped building into our faith. When we stopped building into our faith, we stopped being formed in Christ. We didn't think in Christian ways. So we started thinking like the world while still saying that we were Christians. That doesn't make any sense. So then we started deconstructing our faith because what we believed and what Jesus seemed to say didn't make any sense. How could that make any sense? So we had a lot of doubt. We had a lot of frustration. Plus we wanted to do stuff in the world. So we increasingly just did it. And more and more people poured out of the churches. It was the system, not the beliefs, friends. The analytical and intellectual reasons for faith, the connection of that to philosophical truth or the existential reality of what it means to be a human being, none of that has changed. Jesus is just as philosophically true and personally compelling as he has ever been. In fact, he's probably 10 times more compelling now because our situation is so profoundly anti-human, and yet we can't find our faith. It's the, the system eats the philosophy for lunch. What you do is what you believe. What you pay attention to is what you will assume must be right. 
and what you emotionally will be deeply convinced of. This is why it does matter what's taught in schools, profoundly, and what we watch and what we pay attention to, and why it matters so profoundly that we don't pay attention to God. You are not an evangelical in the Carl F.H. Henry sense if you don't read the Bible every day. You know what kind of evangelical you are? And I know this is going to hurt some people's feelings, okay? But I'm going to say this just because I want to, I want to, I want to make everybody mad because I want you to remember this moment. Carl F.H. Henry had two doctorates. He went behind the lines of the communist countries all the time and debated communists about whether or not God existed and what kind of freedom was necessary for the human person to flourish. He planted seminaries all over the world, Africa, South America. He was an intellectual giant in his day, and he defined what evangelical meant in America in the 40s. And that meant attending to this book and understanding the purposes of God in our times. If you read your Bible every day, if you try to come to church every week, if you try to be part of the body of your Christ, you're a Carl F. H. Henry evangelical. If you don't, you know what you are? And I'm sorry to say this. You're a Donald Trump evangelical. That's what you are. And he may be a lot of things, and some of those are good. But like, remade in the image of Christ is not one of them. And that faith is not going to carry you. It's not going to shape anything. Right? All right. So one way to look at this is that you need a quiet space where there's no tech to spend time with God. I have like three offices. Two of them have multiple monitors. One of them has nothing but a candle and lights I can turn off. Right? You can, you can put together some rules for your life of like what you're going to do that are really deliberate. This one, the common rule, it's a good website to go to. It gives you some stuff to do daily and weekly. I'm not going to spend time on that right now. But one of the things you could do is, do is you could just start listening to the Bible. You could believe that Jesus is the master of a way that really will work. Not just 2,000 years ago, but literally right now, because it wasn't attuned to ancient life. It was attuned to the human person. And the human person actually hasn't changed at all in 2,000 years. Life has changed a lot. But actually, the seven deadly sins, what destroys us, those haven't changed. Most of the dynamics that we face every day that makes our life difficult, that make godliness so hard, that make it difficult to follow Jesus with all our hearts, they're all exactly the same. The way Jesus shaped is still by far the best one. So just read the Bible and look at what is part of a Christian life according to it. And it's these things. Right? Let me end with this. Sometimes people who believe in Jesus, in the like Bible-believing, you should come to Jesus and get saved sense, which is a good sense. There are more senses, but that's a good and necessary sense. Love to quote John 14, 6, where, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay? That's true. That's fundamental. We need to believe that. We need to believe in Jesus, because Jesus is the way, truth, and life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him, right? Here's what we don't sometimes believe. That way, truth, and life cohere together. Right? We tell people to believe Jesus is the way, truth, and life, but what we mean is to believe that Jesus is the truth and the life. That's what we mean. Jesus is the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. But that's not actually what Jesus said. What Jesus said is that he's the way. And in John 8, he actually said that we experience the way before we fully experience him as the truth. You will never really experience Jesus as the truth and know in your gut that he is, the, he is true until you do it. 
You can philosophically persuade yourself that it's most rational to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and is therefore God, but you won't, in all of his teachings, on a gut level, really know that he's the truth. Miroslav Volf said in his lecture downtown last week, he said, in my earthly self, I look at the teachings of Jesus and I realize I would never let Jesus raise my children. Which is a very impious thing to say, right? But you can figure where he's coming from, right? Like, that's the, that's, that's the Christian attitude you'll have if you do not realize that Jesus is the true way. We have to come to believe that Jesus is the true way. That prayer is part of his way. That coming to worship together with believers on every Lord's day at any time possible, wherever possible, is part of his way. That attending to the scriptures, to the extent we have access to them, is part of his way. That finding someone to shepherd you and be a spiritual father or mother to you is part of his way. That these things are all part of his way. That being generous, that serving the poor, that doing what good deeds we can find, that all of these are part of his way, and that by embracing that way, the way shapes us in the truth. And the way shaping us in the truth leads to us living life as it was truly meant to be. His life, his abundant, free, everlasting, heart of flesh, not heart of stone, healing, growing, loving life that believes beautifully, that uses its time everlastingly, <coughs> that is formed in the image of perfect humanity, and that really can see someone worth loving and attending to and delighting in the other, is what will be formed in you by Jesus the Christ. His gift to you is not just forgiveness of sins. It is the indwelling of his very spirit, the reshaping of the image of your creator in you, unto the most beautiful life that a human being can experience. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, um, I, I kind of want to preach about this all year. I think some people would really not like that. But I feel so strongly about this. I feel like this is um, something you want to shout to your people. I want so much, not for people in this room to feel bad. I want so much for people in this room to see the predatory relationship that they're in, to feel the disgust necessary to be free of it, to walk out of that relationship and to really be free, and then to embrace creation and science and technologies to serve your kingdom and your purposes and your will and your righteousness. So that in the midst of the world that we're sent to, there would be no question whether we serve God or mammon, that we serve you, our God that we are, we're not conflicted. We're not anxious about what we, or who we belong to. And we know that what you said to us is that if we seek your kingdom and your righteousness, everything we need, jobs and food and clothes, will all be added to us as well because you know we need them. I pray, Father, that the result of this would be peace, joy, hope, freedom, humility, friendship, love, I pray that this, these six weeks would, be a, would, would bring about a profound change in our community as a church. And that you would make us a loving community where every person here is more interesting than every electronic device in this building to us. Help us to really walk in your way and to escape the other in Jesus' name.